You're listening to the Tapis Paranormal Talking Point Podcast, a show that discusses various aspects of the paranormal world, with paranormal news, ghost stories, interviews, and much more. And without further ado, let's get into some talking points. Hi guys, Scott here from Tepper's Paranormal and welcome back to another episode of the Tepper's Paranormal Talking Point Podcast. So today, my guest is Steve Ward. Steve is a Mothman researcher and ufologist and has been following the Mothman case since November 1966, the original sighting of the Mothman. Steve also works at the Mothman Museum, which we'll go on to discuss in the interview. I got a chance to sit down with Steve and we talked about a number of topics. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. So thanks for joining me, Steve. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you for having me. If you wouldn't mind giving a bit of an introduction to yourself for everyone listening. Um, well, I, uh, uh, I grew up in uh, Michigan, uh, near the Detroit area. And um, I, I guess as a kid, I was always interested in science fiction, that sort of thing. And then the, uh, the thought of flying saucers, that they might actually be real and might actually represent uh, visitors from other planets, was pretty exciting. Uh, in uh, November of 1966, in Michigan, we had a, uh, a major UFO flap, and a lot of very uh, credible people were, were seeing these things. It was a, a landing by the Frank Manor Farm in Dexter. Now, uh, Dexter, Ann Arbor, and Hillsdale were some of these areas where they were seeing these things. They weren't very far, <coughs> pardon me, from where I grew up. I was, uh, I was in junior high at the time, so I, I couldn't drive and I couldn't play UFO investigator, but it was pretty exciting watching the news. And, and some of these sightings were, were treated seriously back in those days. This is a time when Dr. J. Ellen Hynek, who was still attached to Project Blue Book, Project Blue Book was kind of a, uh, almost like a public relations ploy. They didn't seem to be, some, some people involved were, were serious about investigations, but many were not. It was just sort of to appease the public. Well, Dr. Hynek came down. He was still attached to the Air Force. He had to tread a thin line, even though he began to believe that people were really seeing these things after being a skeptic. And he's the one that uttered the famous phrase swamp gas to suggest some of the sightings might be mistaken as swamp gas. And of course, the uh, the, the newspapers went crazy. They, we had the mystery of UFOs were solved and the, the jokes uh, have reverberated for decades. I Actually, as an aside, I saw him 10 years later after he was long separated from the Air Force, he had started the Center for UFO Studies in Evanston, Illinois, became one of the good guys. And uh, he, uh, he gave a talk at the MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network Symposium in Ann Arbor. Uh, and this is an area where UFOs have been seen 10 years before. In fact, the name of his talk was Swamp Gas Plus 10 and Counting. So it was, uh, it was a humorous talk, but very serious. And he talked about some of the early mistakes he had made and so forth. But then following that, that same year, that November, was one of the first major sightings of what was dubbed the Mothman. In West Virginia, about two couples were chased by a winged humanoid with red glowing eyes out of what they call the TNT area, an old abandoned munitions area uh, north of Point Pleasant. That particular sighting hit the wire services all over the world. So I read it as a kid in Michigan. And I thought, how cool is that? I mean, uh, people being chased by a winged humanoid down a, a two-lane highway in the middle of nowhere. So that's kind of what uh, spurred my interest. And I had, I had read books by uh, 
uh, Frank Edwards, who uh, had these great anthologies. He was a, a broadcaster and reporter at the time. He was a good friend of, uh, of uh, the, the head of NICAP, uh, Major Donald Kehoe. And he wrote, a, he wrote a famous book or a best-selling book because it hit just at the right time called Flying Saucers, Serious Business. So uh, I was, uh, and of course, I hit my hometown library just to try and find any kind of books I could on uh, UFOs and the unexplained. So that's what really kind of got me started. And uh, I have been, been following this kind of thing ever since. Cool. OK, so I think to start with that, obviously, the UFO side of things um have you ever seen a ufo yourself you know that sort of you know flying object like that uh i've seen a couple strange things in the sky i uh i actually saw something a little odd uh with a pair of night vision goggles one night now for the most part i've never seen anything but i had had just gotten these these things and i was uh it was in i was in my backyard uh, there's not too much light pollution where i used to live and uh, I looked up in the sky, and at first I was kind of jolted because I was seeing all these dots of, uh, of light uh, uh, zipping by. But all they were, they were just birds, you know, high-level birds, really high up, just looked like pinpoints of light. So it wasn't an invading ar armada of spaceships. But then at one point, now I was told that, that not to, uh, to uh, you know, point this directly into anything like a uh, car headlight or whatever. And uh, uh, also, I shouldn't direct it direct, uh, at the moon, the full moon, because it might hurt the optics. So I, I put the, the goggles up and I saw this. It was like a perfect V. It wasn't a triangle. It was open at the side. It was moving slowly across, across the sky. It wasn't like one of the Vs where birds fly in formation where they're not perfect. Mm -hmm. And I, it was dumbfounded. It looked like uh, there were a number of dots on perfectly on each side. But I didn't have enough time. It was I was getting closer and closer to the moon, erring on the side of caution. I stopped watching, so I wasn't able to determine if it was blocking out stars behind it or to really get a good look at it. So maybe I saw something anomalous. Maybe mm -hmm. it was even military. I don't know. But for the most part, I'm the guy that doesn't see anything. I have to talk to other people that have. Cool. Um, so then, obviously your interest in ufos and that type of thing also ties in nicely with mothman um you now live in point pleasant yes i take it did you move there because of the mothman you know for that sort of story and that history well i, I was planning a move and uh, i was selling the house uh, mm -hmm. and uh i originally i never considered moving to point pleasant because it was always that kind of special place mm -hmm. you know you don't you don't necessarily move to your your your, your prime vacation spot. So, yeah. uh, excuse me here a minute. My my cat is uh, <laughs> interfering with my. Okay, calm down. There we go. Um, uh, nothing like a little subtle humor off to the side here. <laughs> but uh, I started to think about it, and uh, you know, with all the shuffling and selling the house and and finding another house, and I was going to rent uh, initially. Uh, I thought, well, why not? Why not uh, to check it out? And uh, Jeff Wamsley, who uh, runs the Mothman Museum, he founded the Mothman Museum and co-founded the Mothman Festival. He grew up, he, he was six years old when all this stuff happened. And he's been collecting this, this material for years. He suggested there was a house for sale. And this is right on the edge of uh, downtown Point Pleasant. Uh, 
nice little modest house and uh so i i thought well why not and it's been it's been great i uh i, I had a, a two really good movers these young guys <laughs> helped me out from from michigan and uh professional guys two men in a truck i think they call it and the one guy said you know i think you've got more books than my hometown library and that might be it might be true it was i'm still actually still organizing still trying to get things uh uh, I, got, I got two million boxes in my basement. Thank God I've got a basement. At least I've got some storage. But yeah, so it's been uh, it's it's really uh, great. And I'm also working uh, weekends at the Mothman Museum. Um, so yeah, I'm right in the heart of Mothman country. And uh, I never really expected that to happen, but here I am. Cool. So um, I just wanted to talk about the obviously the Mothman Museum. Um, you work there part time as sort of you know working with the information and sharing the history and that sort of thing yes i i, I greet people i i i often ask them uh, if this is their first journey to the mothman museum mm -hmm. usually it is uh, people come from all over the country and all over the world we've had a gentleman in from england and puerto rico and austria just everywhere and uh and i find out uh, i i'd love to find out if it was a planned destination because some people have have, this has been on their bucket list forever. Yeah. And uh, also, um, uh, I find out, uh, you know, if they've uh, seen the movie, read the book, and how much, I, I get some great conversations with these people sometimes. Mm -hmm. So if people have any questions, see, the regular uh, guys that work there, sometimes they get so busy, they don't really have enough uh, time to uh, explain everything. Mm -hmm. And so I've been following it since November of 1966. So I, I have some rudimentary knowledge of uh, the folklore and the history. Yeah. So obviously you mentioned Jeff um, and the Mothman Festival. Um, yes. What's that like to experience? It, it's it's an absolute blast. I, uh, I my, my first visit to Point Pleasant was in uh, 1977. Mm -hmm. After I had, I had read the Mothman Prophecies book, I wanted to see the area. My next visit was the 2006 Mothman Festival. Uh, they have speakers. They have up and down Main Street. They have uh, everything from T-shirts to food. Sometimes they have a full-size Stay Puft Marshmallow Man in one of the uh, vacant lots. Uh, bouncy houses, you know, things for the kids. Uh, the Mothman Museum is right there and a couple other stores that Jeff owns. Um, uh, they uh, on the uh, the street that runs perpendicular uh it's uh, the side street that's where the mothman statue stands and that's usually where the uh the speakers have their tables and their books and so forth very accessible a lot of very well-known people and some not as well known but uh always a good selection of speakers so it uh in this last year i mean it was just crazy uh thousands more than usually come and we usually get thousands but the, the one thing I want people to know, if you ever make the pilgrimage to the Mothman Festival, which occurs every third weekend of September, um, uh, regardless of how that, that week falls, uh, you have to get there early Saturday morning, go to the information booth and buy your ticket for the dreaded TNT hayride in the infamous TNT area where the Mothman was seen. That's the only thing that cost a few bucks there. Uh, everything else is free, uh, free admission. So, uh, and in Saturday night, we take people on hay rides. Essentially, we uh, start at the farm museum. We have three tractors and three carts. Two of the carts are <clears throat> proper hay ride carts with bales of hay and so forth. 
They, I'm one of the tour guides. They give me the old man cart with a nice, comfortable seat. So that's probably the one you want. And we take off into the, now the TNT area is creepy in the daytime, super creepy at night. It's where they made munitions during World War II. It was pretty much abandoned in the 60s when they first started seeing the Mothman there. Uh, it is the McClintic wildlife area now. There are some remnants of some of the structures there all overgrown. It looks like a George Pal's The Time Machine when the time traveler steps off the, the time machine and starts exploring the ruins, you know. And uh, so it's a little bit like a Halloween hayride. It changes from time to time. But we take people in and the dreaded men in black try to turn you away. But they're more like the Keystone Cops than the men in black. Uh, we, there's a couple guys in ghillie suits that hide the shadows that scare the hell out of people. But the best of all is uh, two of my friends who portray the men in black by day, they take down the Mothman that's hanging in the ceiling of the Mothman Museum. They go out to the TNT area a couple days early. They hide behind the old acid plant. They run a wire with this, a low-tech delivery system. The eyes are lit up with battery power and they blast a sound effect, a creepy sound effect over speakers. I can't tell you what the sound effect is because they've never paid royalties and I don't want them to end up in prison or, or have an ankle bracelet because they haven't paid royalties on this, uh, this sound effect. But uh, it's just a blast. People love it. And uh, it's, it's, it's really fun being a, a tour guide because you're talking to people, you're, you're joking with people, and you find out where, you know, we, I had, uh, sometimes I'll ask people, um, you know, who came the furthest? And one gentleman with a bit of a brogue spoke up and said, Belfast. So he won that round. Definitely. Yeah, I must admit, the Mothman Festival is something that's on my bucket list of things to do. You know, it's one of those things that every year I see the adverts for it, I see, you know, the various different promotions that go up on the uh, museum Facebook page and that sort of thing. And it is one of those, it really sort of, everything about it looks like a really good get together of just a mix of different people. Yes, and you can, uh, it's one of those places at like at these conferences where you can talk to people about these subjects, uh, unlike some of your perhaps family members or coworkers that look at you a bit sideways, like yeah. you did what this weekend? And here you can you can you can talk to the speakers, people that done research and published uh, interesting books, and you've got the ge geography. You got you can explore the TNT area. Uh, there's a lot of uh, uh, you want to call it real history in the area, with uh, Chief Cornstalk. The first battle of the Revolutionary War mm -hmm. and so forth, and it's where the two rivers come together—the the Ohio and the Kanawha, where the, where the waters mingle. So it's uh, it's really a, an amazing area that just has so much. Cool. So obviously, you mentioned uh, your interest in high strangeness areas, uh, which is obviously the locations where a lot of different things occur in the same sort of place. Um, would you class the TNT area as one of those? Well, it, uh, yes, there, 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 people still see things out there. People do a lot of EVP work. Uh, I have uh, I've talked to people, friends of mine have seen, for lack of a better term, shadow people out there. Uh, Mothman, I, I tell him he's, he's probably long gone. He's, I, I think he's probably in a condo in Florida somewhere, you know, taking, taking a, a, a pension or something. But uh, yeah, people have st still will see something like UFOs out there. But the, the activity seemed to be at a very high level back in the middle 60s mm -hmm. when John Keel came down several times from New York and, uh, you know, what the material eventually became the Mothman Prophecies. 
and several other articles that he wrote, uh, he and uh, when you know when when uh, the Scarberries and the Mallets first saw this creature by the Old North Power Plant, and they were chased into town, um, the you know it hit the newspapers and droves of people went out to the TNT area with their shotguns and their bow and arrows, thinking they're going to bag themselves a Mothman. Well, pardon me, John Keel and uh, his colleague, uh, Mary Heyer, who was a, a stringer for the Athens Messenger, she's the one that wrote a column called uh, Where the Waters Mingle. And that was, uh, well, she talked about uh, UFO sightings, Mothman sightings, men in black sightings, occurrences. And so they would go down there, sometimes with other people, south of there to Gallipolis Ferry. And that was, a, it's, even now, if you go back on the hollers down there, uh, there's a lot of people live back there, but it's uh, it can be a pretty quiet and desolate place at night. Imagine what it was a half a century ago. So they would go down there, and, and there were a particular hill they would sit on, and they would see these strange lights going over all the time. Even uh, the uh, sort of the southern end of the TNT area is uh, Camp Conley Road. The Lily family is mentioned in the Mothman Prophecies. They had all kinds of stuff going on with strange lights. Uh, they had... Uh, like bedroom invaders, bedroom apparitions that look kind of like men in black. Uh, these areas, uh, and, and you know, you have the Mothman, which was kind of a paradox. Uh, wingspan probably wasn't big enough to lift something like that. He didn't always flap his wings. Uh, people that saw it oftentimes had an outbreak of poltergeist phenomena in their home. So very, very strange. And uh, it just seemed to go like a lot of different types of phenomena kind of bled into the other. Like, you know, people are familiar now with the Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, there are many, uh, many hotspots people have, have talked about over the years. And uh, for some reason, I think that might be the key to actually understanding some of these things. If, if we could try and figure out why is it that these things all occur in the same area? And not only that, John Keel talked about window areas where these things seem to show up and then hang around for a while and disappear, maybe leave footprints, uh, landing marks or whatever. But he said, if you if you look at these window areas and you go back in time, you'll find that other phenomena sometimes occurred there as well. So it's like these these hotspots uh, are, are active at different times over the decades or centuries. And sometimes the phenomena isn't always exactly the same. Okay. Yeah, I think that's... Uh sort of a very interesting theory the you know that it's the locations not necessarily the things that are there um that you know these places draw in different things because of the place they are as opposed to you know the various things being there yes um uh, keel talked a lot about that i was uh i was a hardcore et guy back in the 60s i mean i was like i said i was reading frank edwards uh uh, Jim and Coral Lorenzen were the heads of APRO, the Aerial uh, uh, Phenomena Research Organization, one of the early groups, serious groups. They were had scientists involved. They wrote these great books about uh, uh, humanoids, you know, the landings and people seeing these, these small, uh, usually small creatures or whatever uh, next to the craft. And uh, they, uh, uh, that was very sold on, we're being, you know, visited by probably several other planets and races and so forth. And then Keel kind of eased me in with uh, strange creatures from time and space where he first presents the idea of window areas. And then, 
uh, it was a double whammy. He, when he wrote uh, uh, Operation Trojan Horse, it was a while before I read it. And I kind of came kicking and screaming because he, he was uh, not sold on the ET theory. He thought that the, some of these things were a natural condition of the planet. And he used terms like transmogrifications of energy. Say that five times fast. And uh, <laughs> also he used the term ultra terrestrial to try and grapple with what these things were. Were they kind of extra dimensional or whatever? He borrowed that term from his colleague and friend, uh, Ivan Sanderson. And of course, Ivan Sanderson was the great British naturalist transplanted to New Jersey, probably most famous for the abominable snowman legend come to life. So uh, Keel thought some of these things might be temporal, um, and but but not, not necessary hallucinations because they could leave uh, physical effects. Although in some cases he thought perhaps uh, some of these experiences may be sort of illusory, but not hallucinations. There was some kind of outside stimulus like the case of uh, Anne Jeffries in the 1600s. She is supposed to have had all kinds of uh, uh, experiences with the little people, with the elementals. And she would have these detailed experiences, but she was just in a trance in a room by herself. So uh, it, it, gets, it can get very complicated. He, he talks about uh, it's sort of a, uh, a co-creation. It's like a lot of these manifestations kind of uh, express our collective expectations at the time. You go back in the way back with the, the, the menandering lights. You know, some people thought they were literally uh, witches carrying their lanterns on their broom. There's other traditions in other countries that they, some little men had their little lanterns or, or, or whatever. Uh, you, uh, it, it, fairy lights, uh, as time goes on, you get the uh, uh, mysterious airships, you know, which are kind of uh, dirigible-like or whatever, but they're way ahead of any Zeppelin or dirigible uh, 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 capability at the time. And then you, it goes on to the ghost flyers and the Foo Fighters and so forth. There does seem to be kind of an, an advancement in, in these things. And he suggested perhaps some of this is sort of paranormal mimicry or, or whatever. But he did also, but he did believe that some of these creatures, some of these beings were perhaps uh, real flesh and blood, and there may be uh, a differentiation between the two. Cool. Um, so obviously the men in black you mentioned previously, the sort of concept of the mysterious black suited figure that shows up after a sighting um after you know an event such as the mothman and that sort of thing and i guess almost tries to divert attention and sort of hide things almost very trickster like you know even if you go way back into history uh was it uh, nicholas flamel uh he was a uh, not a nice man he was the one hunting down uh witches and so forth and uh you know, some of the witches might have been unsavory types, but some of them were probably uh, very much like some of the new age people today that were into these kind of esoteric things that, you know, they wouldn't tolerate back then. But when, but the, the lore goes that when they were, would consult with the devil, sometimes the devil uh, bore a strong resemblance to some of the claims of modern day men in black experiences wearing black hats and riding a, a black horse instead of a black Cadillac or, or whatever. But uh, John Keel used the term as kind of a generic term because uh, 
sometimes you had uh, air, well, actually, the Air Force put out a a a a, a paper once, well, not a paper, but a a warning that uh, uh, there were people apparently masquerading as Air Force officers going to some of these people that had seen UFOs. This goes back a ways and uh, claiming that they were legitimate Air Force personnel and they would confiscate photographs or whatever or tell them to keep quiet about their sighting. And the Air Force didn't know who was doing it or what was going on. So sometimes you get uh, just like the, you know, the manifestations of the devil. There's usually something wrong. Something's not quite right. And the same with some of these Air Force officers, the insignia is supposed to have been wrong, or it turns out that the major French or whoever, it, there was a major French, but a whole diff a different person. So uh, now sometimes, you know, Mary Heyer had some strange, some real oddballs come into her office and, uh, and, and say things like, what would, what, would, uh, what would you do if somebody told you to stop publishing UFO sightings? And she say things like, I'd call tell them to go straight to hell. Well, you know, it's it's very it, it's there's got to be more than one answer to some of these. There were there were people roaming around Point Pleasant at the time that had to have been straight uh, government FBI people snooping around just to kind of check things out. Uh, but you know, in some of these cases with the eyeballs, uh, people tend to suggest that maybe they're ETs or paranormal or whatever. Uh, some of them are very odd, uh, but you know, as you as you know. Uh, this realm that we're in does attract a few oddballs now and then. So it's very possible that someone that might have certain issues or certain uh, uh, social problems might be mistaken. You know, I, I imagine that uh, even, uh, you know, missionaries sometimes dressed in black with the, they're going around door to door. They don't, don't see a car. So they look suspicious, but they're just going around uh, handing out uh, tracks or, or whatever. Uh, so it's uh, it, it's very you have to be very careful when you wade through this. But there there are some, uh, and, and Keel also suggested that he thought some of the men in black encounters may have been illusory. Nothing was really physically happening outside, but they had some kind of a real experience. It does seem to be a throwback to the belief, anyway, in the devil, to to some extent. Now I I'm not uh, I'm not one that is. Uh, really believes very much in demons and that so forth and so forth but there's a, a, a as you as you know there's a, uh, a an aspect of this general phenomena that can be very negative i think that 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 factor whatever the cause is whether it's the trickster or or monsters from the id so to speak uh has given rise to some of our beliefs in demons and and evil and so forth but may not actually be classic demons okay so moving on again sort of to the mothman again what obviously there's a number of different theories as to what uh mothman is to what the mothman sightings are i've seen a various you know uh, different types of bird and other things like that as well as obviously hoaxes and things to that extent what um are some of your preferred theories for the mothman uh, I, I go back to the paradox because I, I, I believe that we have to listen to the experiencer. And uh, John Keel talked to a little over 100 people that year between the mid 60, around late 66 and late 67. And uh, the, the descriptions, the physical descriptions were generally the same, not always. Uh, some people saw something more like a bird. Uh, Tom Urey, one of the classic UFO witnesses, his, uh, 
encounter isn't reported accurately in the Mothman prophecies. He essentially saw a thunderbird, a, 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 a un, unknown bird of a 10 to 12 foot wingspan. Um, I, people have talked about the uh, polluted TNT area and it's some kind of mutant. I, I think we can reject that out of hand. I mean, we know from you know, radiation and other things what uh, mutations happen with animals. The fact that there could be some kind of a perfect hybrid humanoid between humanoid and something, it's just, you know, that's great for a 1950s science fiction film with a rubber monster, but not, you know, for reality. Mm -hmm. um, but again, it didn't always flap its wings. It didn't, it didn't act like a physical creature, although it seemed to leave footprints. Um, it uh, um, uh, it uh, would take off straight like a helicopter. Um, again, the poltergeist aspect, you know, how uh, uh, people that have seen UFOs uh, sometimes have an outbreak of poltergeist phenomenon. Here's another thing. John Keel discovered that people that, that whether they saw UFOs, strange lights in the sky or encrypted, many of them would suffer from the same physical after effects, uh, thirst, uh, uh, muscle ache and so forth. And also conjunctivitis, you know, the eye burn that people get sometimes with a close proximity of a, of a UFO. Well, when Keel, uh, his first time there, when he's talking to people in Point Pleasant about their sightings, uh, the one young lady was there, Connie Carpenter. She was one of the first uh, people to see it. She was driving by the Mason County Golf Course. It was standing there in, in all its majesty, uh, put its wings behind it, took off straight like a helicopter. The next day, she uh, had conjunctivitis. She did not see a UFO or a strange light. She, she saw essentially some kind of a cryptid. So uh, it, it's, it seems to be paraphysical. Um, it's, I, I would say more than an apparition, but that brings up another sighting. The Grays were missionaries, uh, Reverend Gray and his wife, Pat Gray. And she wrote a book uh, on this sighting. They were uh, at that time period in the mid sixties, they were uh, ready to go off to, uh, I don't know what, what far off country it was as missionaries. The night before they left, there was a, an apparition, uh, a vision of the Mothman. It was, it looked, you know, it was the, the, the same height, red glowing eyes, wings and so forth. They looked at it in a, a demonic context based on their, their experience. Yep. And next day they left. They didn't know anything about this stuff hitting the fan at that time. They were gone several years. They came back several years later, started looking into old newspapers, hearing about the Mothman. And they thought, my God, that's what we saw in our room. So they, they seem to see an apparition. And here's another, here's another thing that you can throw in, in, in another wrench to throw in the works. Keel got a couple reports of people that had or that were close by that this thing, and it sounded like it was some kind of machinery or humming or something suggesting perhaps mechanical. And uh, Mrs. Thomas uh, is one of the last uh, people to see the Mothman during that time period. She lived in the TNT area. She saw this thing um, walking quickly on the ground. It wasn't flying. It was walking very jerkily, she said, like a robot. So uh, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what the hell it was. John Keel doesn't know either. Uh, you know, the, the term that's where we, we get the term ultra terrestrial. So, you know, if if in fact these things are manifesting our temporal, perhaps the Mothman manifested differently at different times. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why not. You know, I don't know that it, the laws that govern this, we may not fully understand 
but they are probably consistent and probably give that that same result based on whatever their makeup is. Mm -hmm. So Mothman obviously is tied in with the uh, bridge disaster, the collapsing. Um, and I've seen a lot of, from various documentaries, books and things that I've looked at about Mothman, um, it seems to be tied in as almost an omen of negativity, um, which I guess goes back to somewhat what you were saying as well about how people that see the Mothman then become unwell um you know suffer from a variety of different ailments and that what do you think about the whole mothman being an omen uh, per perhaps uh, i've always said that uh you know harbingers need to get their act together you know uh, they show up scare the hell out of people but we don't know what they're warning us from you know we need a uh you, you know you go to that uh thing to get your your weight a little card pops out they need to hand us a little card saying hey the bridge is going to fall or, you know, or something. So I, I guess I tend to think that it was just something that happened in space and time. I, I don't think it caused the bridge disaster as some do. I'm not sure that it was a harbinger. Um, mm -hmm. It may well have been, there's maybe something in the, in the collective psyche where these things manifest when something is uh, due to happen. Um, <clears throat> the, uh, uh, the prophecies part of the Mothman prophecies comes from uh, John Keel was in contact with several individuals that firmly believed they were in contact with space brothers and uh, benign beings and so forth. I think a lot of it was due to channeling or whatever, but some may have been seemingly physical contact and some even overlapped into the men in black stuff. Mm -hmm. But over over a period of time, he was getting they were getting prophecies. And sometimes they would come true about plane crashes and so forth. Uh, the uh, these cosmic tricksters, cosmic tricksters, as Keel called them, would kind of lead them along. Sometimes there was a gentleman. He was a uh, professor, I think, at M Michigan University or, or one of the one of the universities in Michigan. He was getting prophecies, and they were coming true. And then he got the big one. You know, get your get your gang together. The world's going to end. We're going to come to the hill and pick up everybody. And of course, they didn't come to the hill, boy. But yet some of these prophecies seem to be legitimate. So Keel was getting these from all these different people. And he was, uh, there was going to be a disaster on the Ohio River. He was convinced it was going to be a, a, a chemical plant blowing up, a factory blowing up. And, but he kept his mouth shut because he thought, boy, you know, if, if this does happen, he's going to be suspect number one. Mm -hmm. So he told Mary Heyer, don't tell anybody. She was having dreams, and so was Mrs. Thomas, about packages floating in the river. And they had this real sense of impending doom. Well, as time went on, these contactees uh, kept saying, oh, there's going to be a, a huge event on December 15th. And they said it's going to be an EM effect. No explanation as to what that implies, electromagnetic, but what does that mean? Uh, I think several days of darkness. This may have been the one where the Pope was going to be assassinated, supposedly. Mm -hmm. uh, but by this time, Keel admitted, he said he, he was completely paranoid. He had he was buying this hook, line and sinker. He was in New York at the time that the bridge collapsed. So he's there on December 15th, 1967. He's got bottles of water in there back, back before you could actually go to the store and just buy your bottles of water. And he's uh, it, it was told the prophecy said that the moment President Johnson lit the Christmas tree, 
in, in Rockefeller Center that the power failure would happen and all this stuff would happen would would, would uh, occur. Mm-hmm. You lit the Christmas tree, nothing happened. Moments later, there came a bulletin over the news that the bridge between Ohio and West Virginia had collapsed, the Silver Bridge. Yeah. And Keel was just furious. It's like they were they were sending out these messages. Some something was, but they were it was like misdirection. You know, it was crazy. And but but all several people were getting these bizarre messages. And again, that's where the prophecies part of the Mothman prophecies happens. It's it's a wild book. And and the thing about that is, the the editors cut out half of it when they published it. Uh, some of it has been preserved in the Eighth Tower, uh, but uh, so uh, uh, it just uh, it, it's mystifying. I mean, it's it's like but if you if you look at so much, many of these cases and so forth it's not uh it's not you know it's not a that proceeds and follows b c in, in a logical outcome um richard haddam uh, i'm i'm in a uh, one of the small town monsters uh, uh documentaries the mothman legacy which mm-hmm. is a uh, a sequel to the mothman of point pleasant and they do a, a really good job one of the other people they interviewed, and that was Richard Haddam, who was the screenwriter for the uh, Mothman Prophecies movie. Uh, Keel was very happy with the screenplay, even though it took liberties with his book. He thought finally somebody got the some of the essence of his book after so many screenwriters wanted to just turn Mothman into a monster, yeah. right? Well, Richard Haddam in this, it very, very revealing. It's very interesting to see what he says. He said that when he first got into this, like so many of us, he was going to dive in and solve some of the mysteries of the paranormal. Mm-hmm. And of course, the more you you go down that road, the murkier it gets, the more questions you have, the more patterns, the more uh, 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 splits on the road, you know, the forks on the road. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what uh, that's what Keel was was involved in. Um, and, and so many other researchers, uh, you know, he started out thinking we're dealing with E.T., and then he went down this crazy road of ultra-terrestrials and, and, and uh, uh, you know, paraphysical manifestations, possibly. So uh, it's, uh, it's fascinating. But I, I, every once in a while, I stop and wonder, why do we do this? You know, it's almost like you're hitting your head against the wall. And, boy, I'm really enjoying this. I want more. Yeah. Um, so, obviously, Mothman is very well associated with uh, Point Pleasant. But I know there are also sightings of Mothman, somewhat, you know, relatively famous ones from other locations. I believe there was one that uh, stands out in my head that was Chicago. Um, Or there was something, you know, an entity that resembled Mothman in Chicago. And then you've got a number of other entities that are very similarly described around the world i know near me here in england we've got uh something known as owl man which has oh, yeah. again a very similar Ooh. yeah very similar description uh so that's probably about an hour away from me and it's one of those i know that it's, it's very similar but i don't know you know necessarily if they're linked or yeah, it was a, a a little bit different mm-hmm. um but uh, you had uh, I have to be careful because uh, people will, will want to throw the term Mothman around quite a yeah. bit. You know, you had the Wisconsin Man Bat, which was quite a bit different. Uh, there was the Houston Batman, 
that almost looked like a guy in a suit, I think, back in the 50s. Uh, the, uh, uh, I, I will talk about the Chicago Mothman in a minute, but there was the, the one sighting that was the closest to the Point Pleasant Mothman took place in Kent, England, uh, in the Saltwood Horror, I think they called it, if I got that right. Uh, it was uh, almost three years to the day, minus, minus a day, uh, that the, uh, it was 63, that the Scarberries and the Malice were chased down Route 62, north of Point Pleasant. Some teenagers were leaving a dance, and they, uh, they saw a light come down, and light behind a grove of trees. And then, if I remember correctly, they saw another light uh, form, and then they saw this thing, this thing shuffling along, just like the Mothman did by the old North Power Plant. It had its, uh, it looks like it had no head or its head was kind of sunken down at its shoulders, six, seven feet tall, same kind of bat-like wings, uh, again, shuffling along. It did not have the red glowing eyes. But other than that, that was the spitting image of mm -hmm. Mothman, you know. Uh, now, the Chicago stuff, uh, some of it is a bit dubious, and I, I, I become very jaded by it. So there may be some very legitimate sightings there, but uh, I, I have uh, from uh, two sources in MUFON, told me that some of the original sightings coming from there a few years ago were all coming from the same IP address. Okay. There is a, an excellent researcher named Allison Jornlin out of Wisconsin. She went uh, some years ago to uh, many of these spots where most of these sightings were anonymous, so you, you couldn't talk to the original person. But uh, the uh, uh, she would go to the, you know, when somebody's making up a story and they, they don't get all the details right about the area, mm -hmm. she found several flaws in some of them. She did say she found, I think, a couple uh, sightings that seemed like they may be legitimate. I, I have just kind of turned off the Chicago Mothman yeah. because I think it's polluted, which is a shame because if there is some real phenomena there that uh, needs to be investigated, mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't know what to, what to do about it. <clears throat> of course. Um, so then I think one of the last things I want to ask about is other cryptids. Um, so obviously the Mothman is the main one. It's the one closest to you, obviously there in Point Pleasant. Um, but what are your views on just you know generally other cryptids, things like Bigfoot, um, the Loch Ness monster, stuff like that? Well, there <clears throat> there may be again. Keel may be right that some of these actually may be physical unknown creatures, and some of them may be due to some kind of paranormal mimicry for a better for a, for not well, for lack of a better name mm -hmm. uh stan gordon did some uh, has done great research in the pennsylvania area for years he uncovered a series of uh bigfoot sightings seen in conjunction with strange lights and ufos in pennsylvania in uh, 73 and 74 some of these are bizarre bigfoot sightings that uh would uh, disappear when they were shot uh green glowing eyes uh, again seen in conjunction with UFOs and people experiencing all kinds of bizarre psychic phenomena. Uh, the the Dogman, uh, I have been, uh, uh, Linda Godfrey, who we lost recently, a great researcher and a great lady, uh, she uh, uh, had uh, teamed up with Lee Hample. Lee Hample uh, has a farm right on the edge of Bray Road. And I've seen the photographs that he's taken over the last 10 years with his trap cameras. There's all kinds of things flying around in the sky and toward the ground. There are footprints, five-toed footprints that appear out of nowhere. Sometimes they, the two sets of footprints will split into two separate like creatures. 
and then disappear. He's got these incredible photographs of these footprints in the snow. The Bucks County Paranormal Team out of Pennsylvania has been there. They were, uh, they were, uh, they, they got it on YouTube that you they hear this howling going back and forth. And I'm not an expert on animal howls, but it was very creepy. And they were seeing eye shine about six feet off the ground. But there's there's some evidence that, that the trap cameras very seldom catch anything. These things act like animals. They eat roadkill. They eat bait. But there seems to be surrounded by some kind of uh, technology. So that you've got another possible paradox there. There's a, a sighting that uh, Linda Godfrey talks about in Monsters Among Us in New York State, I think in the 90s, traveling along, around, uh, along Route 88. The man's driving on a two-lane and it's dark and he can see uh it's one of these two lanes that goes cuts in a hill and he's seeing this light moving along in the woods and he's thinking this guy's got to be on a four-wheeler he's driving like crazy i better slow down because he's gonna go off the edge of this uh hill and so when it comes down it morphs into a classic dog man and takes three long strides and it's across the road and it's gone so there, there are many there are many there was even one in uh in uh, nottingham canal uh paul Devereaux talks about it in uh, uh earth energies i think and uh, three kids they see this mist rising off the uh off the canal and it starts to collate a bit and there's sort of lights in there and they it starts to move toward them so they all three of them take off now two of them describe something they didn't say bigfoot or sasquatch but the way they're describing the outlines of this thing kind of forming, but still translucent, looks like a Bigfoot. Now, the other kid did not see that at all. He saw the mist and the lights. He did not see the outline of the creature. So like in so many of these cases, people are seeing different things, looking at exactly the same apparition or, or whatever it is. It happens a lot of times in with ghost hunters and that sort of thing. So there's a, Paul Devereaux has a, a great uh, term. He calls it proto-entities. And that's where, like, like the saltwood horror, where the the light uh, or the maybe even what looks like a craft mm -hmm. seems to be inseparable from the entity. There's kind of a morphing going on where the two seem to be one somehow. Okay, um, perfect. I think that brings us to the end of the questions I had. Um, so if that's okay with you, I think we'll end it there. If Sounds good. Unless there's anything you want to add. I, I have a, a podcast called The High Strangeness Factor. It's on the Paranormal UK radio network. And uh, every every other fortnight, we have a, a new show. With, there's a few uh, years of back uh, shows. I was on a hiatus for a while. Uh, Andy Mercer and I are, are on there together and sometimes other co-hosts. I'm also on Mac Maloney's Military X-Files uh, every week as a correspondent. And that's a fun show. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm going to be uh, uh, attending the Frogman conference coming up very shortly in Ohio. That's where people saw the Loveland Frogman in the in early 70s and mid-50s. Uh, uh, mid, uh, it's one of these sort of one-off creatures that very seldom show up. You know, they're not as yeah. not as prolific as uh, Bigfoot or, or winged creatures. But uh, so anyway, it's uh, great to be here. And uh, thank you for having me. Once again, a big thanks to Steve for taking time to be a part of this interview. If you want to know more about Steve, find his podcast or look up the Mothman Museum. I'll put all the links in the description down below on the YouTube version of this podcast. And with that, that brings us to the end of this episode. I've been Scott from Tepper's Paranormal, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>